Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you're listening to this. This is episode 10, believe it or not, of the Strongcast. And today we've got someone outside of our normal circle. We've got uh, an academic, I believe is the technical term, Dr. Christopher Matthews from Nottingham Trent University, PhD in sociology. And Dr. Matthews is going to talk to us today in around why we do, or athletes do, the stupid things they do, roughly, approximately. Yeah. And on that note, I'll hand over to Dr. Matthews to introduce himself. Yeah, I, I like that, um, that notion of why we do the things we do. I've never put it like that. I'd put it slightly differently, but I think we can stick with that for now, for sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I'm Christopher Matthews. My, I think it's worth, because I'm so far out of everybody's kind of circle of this sort of area, just introducing my background a little bit and that will lead us into understanding a little bit about why we would bother with sociology. Um, so my kind of interaction with gym culture started when I was 15. So 25 years, I was thinking about that this morning, quarter of a century in the gym. I may not look like I've been in the gym for quarter of a century, but uh, in and out in terms of bodybuilding gyms, um, proper weightlifting gyms while I was at Loughborough, um, boxing gyms where I spent a lot of work time for my research, which we'll talk about in a bit. And then more recently, as I've had to stop boxing, as I've got a bit older and had a few brain problems, um, <clears throat> my dog wants to go out, damn it. Um, uh, just normal gyms, back into normal gyms, which is quite cool as well. So I've spent a load of time in gyms. I've actually never really published specifically about gyms, but uh, we're gonna talk a lot about that today. I use a lot of the examples that I've had over those years in, in teaching. Um, so that's where I kind of like come into this as you talked about it, the sociology of strength sports. Yeah. Sociology of drugs is what we're going to talk about as well. Sociology of bodybuilding and those sort of things. So I think that's where we'll go. Um, just a quick bit on my education. I was a personal, I don't know if you ever knew this, I was a personal trainer for a while. How that. I got into academia was I was a sports coach. Then I needed to, re I realized sports coaching is rubbish. Um, so I did personal training. Then I realized personal training is rubbish. All of it's service industry, isn't it? Um, so I, I went and did personal training qualification. That led me into a HND. That led me to get into Loughborough to do sports science. Did sports science. Uh, we'll maybe talk about degrees as well in a little bit. I think I mentioned I might try and talk to you about that a bit, about why sports science is still a good degree when everyone else can self-educate, but we'll talk about that. And then I did um, sociology, sport masters, PhD in sociology, basically. Um, that was all around boxing. So I, I took up boxing at that time. I boxed for a little bit, very, very low level. My dog, she's pissed off, so I might let her out. Very, very low level boxing, boxed for about 10 years, and then eventually, in and out of different boxing gyms, moved around, went to University of Brighton uh, for my first proper academic post, and took up amateur boxing and had three fights. Yeah. Uh, won one, won my last one. <laughs> that means I lost two. <laughs> um, so basically, what I've done is built a career around um, studying what I think is the best stuff in sport, yeah. um, which is all the cool stuff, violence, pain and injury, drug use, all the stuff that I think is the, is the stuff that, for me anyway, I mean, I like watching fight sports, I like watching people be big, fast and horrible to each other, I, I, like, I quite like that. I understand there's problems with that, but, but that's um, it's a little bit of my background. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you want to let your dog out, we can edit that out. Um, that's not a problem. I like, I like it when uh, dogs are in podcasts. Yeah, well, the thing is, if we don't let the dog out, people just sat there going, when's he going to let the dog out? 
<laughs> he's all right. He's all right. Um, I, I was going to, sorry, I was going to talk as well about how we're thinking about sociology. Do you want me to just kind of move into that, how we're thinking about sociology yeah. here? I was just going to say that the reason we've got Dr. Matthews on and the reason it's a little bit different from normal is that although Dr. Matthews very much is in academia as his, his day-to-day job, um, he works at Nottingham Trent University, um, he is a lot closer to one of us than you might think from uh, just listening to the podcast. Um, so we normally just put these out on audio. It will go out on video at some point. But he's covered in tattoos. He <laughs> likes to drink. Um, he's not what you normally expect, which is why I ended up chatting to him um, a while ago and kind of building this, this conversation. Um, the other thing, if I can just ask, if you can just make sure your microphone isn't scraping on your beard when you're talking. Oh. Because we get an itchy scratchy. Can you hear that, can you? Oh, yeah. Oh, God damn, sorry. I'm an old <laughs> professional. Uh, I'm, you know, because we're doing a lot of teaching from home now I, I'm, I am going to have to follow your lead and set up a proper setup yeah, microphone. Microphone. yeah yeah I've got to do it unfortunately well not unfortunately professionalizing is quite useful um yes yes yeah, so what do you mean by that term sociology yeah so uh, there's, there's there's hundreds of years of debate around what that term means forget all of that how are we going to think about it just for today very simply that instead of thinking about how we can as you, as you put it understand the stupid things that we do um, using, let's say, biology. It's, it's something to do with our genes or, or psychology. It's something to do with like some sort of coherent identity that's solid in our heads that makes us do these things. <clears throat> we'll think about it more. And, and not that there isn't some validity in those ideas, obviously. Um, but we'll think about it more in terms of how behaviours, ideas, um, people's identities and what they think about the world emerges out of interactions with each other and also cultural norms and, and, and culture more broadly. So those sort of interactions, and you'll see that kind of underpins all the stuff that we'll talk about, are how people come to have behaviours. Um, the, the simple way of thinking about it is the, the, the nurture, not the nature. That's the other way to think about it. So, so people learning stuff about how to be in the world and what's normal and what's not normal and then how that behaviour, those ideas shape their behaviours. To, to simplify, that's the way we'll think about stuff. So kind of a hot topic at the moment then? In what respect? Uh, with the current nonsense of the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, all, all, the, one of the problems with sociology is it, it, we all live in it and it's, it's constant. We, we all know something about sociology. We don't necessarily understand the science of it, but it can speak to every single topic. And, and one of the reasons why we've ended up talking about this, I think, is because Although I've not specifically published on bodybuilding, I expect I will at some point, um, a lot of the stuff that we talk about using social theory and, and kind of social concepts that you know, focus on social interactions help us understand anything you want to apply them to. Now, understanding might be weaker in different places, but um, they're very, very useful tools and just really useful for critical thinking. So that will be kind of where we're kind of going to go with a lot of this stuff, I guess. Um, and yes, it, it really does help with coronavirus. Not that anybody listens to sociologists, <laughs> but they listen to epidemiologists. And, and we know there's a lot of problems with epidemiology. And there's a, there's a, if anybody wants to, to, to follow one of my mentors, Robert Dingwall, on, on Twitter, I know no one goes on Twitter, but no. if you want to know about coronavirus, he's the man to follow as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, sidetracked already. <laughs> so um, we've actually got talking points. Uh, yes. And the first point that we're going to stop off on our somewhat unusual journey today is um, labelling and subculture theory um, and how that relates to bodybuilding and drugs. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, going to, I'm, I'm not going to 
belabor any of the theory uh, and I'm going to bunch these two ideas together relatively simply and also what hopefully people will find is that what I'm talking about it's not it's not anything that anyone's going to be like oh I never thought of it like that they'll know what I'm talking about I'm putting just going to put a name to a lot of these things and, and almost codify it and, and give it some structure rather than I'm going to be like blowing blowing people's minds with science so the way that we can start to think about bodybuilding from this perspective labeling is when we put a label onto something it begins to have a meaning so we're seeing this in a minute in terms of the race riots i mean i don't want to get into these issues too much but when we label someone with a specific race that engenders some people to think about that race in a certain way you know they don't know that person yeah. very simple idea and, and this obviously happens in relation to drugs yeah. and it obviously happens in relation to bodybuilding and people are labeled a bodybuilder and when someone hears that, that means something to someone. Um, just the same as drug user. We'll talk about what specific drugs, but in everyone's head, that means something. Yeah. Um, so so labeling theory is this kind of very simple notion. And I, and I like to kind of link it to this notion of the self-fulfilling prophecy as well. If I'm labeled as something by someone, I take that in a lot of the time as well. I take that in and then I, and I perform that, one, that way. One of the ways that I learned this at, at university is, if you start to assume that one of the lads in my class is a bit of a tear away and then you treat them like that, guess what? That's how they end up behaving. So you label them in that way and then they, they, they end up fulfilling that prophecy. So in relation to kind of drugs and, and sport, and actually where I've published on this is in relation to drugs and boxing, actually the absence of drugs in, in low level boxing, amateur boxing. But I, I drugs relation to, to performance enhancing drugs or I'm now talking about, yeah, I'm now talking, yeah, sorry, I, 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 I probably need to clarify some of those terms at different times, but I, I have done one piece of research on, on, on drug use in sport and um, largely shown that there's very little drug use in, in amateur boxing. And there's kind of obvious reasons for that if you think about the amateur nature of it. Anyway talk about that a bit but in terms of um where a lot of this work is done it, it's not really in bodybuilding as as with as you know with with the nutrition side and the supplementation side who researches bodybuilders i mean they're weirdos right <laughs> they're, an, they're an odd sample there's not many of people who are bothered about that sort of thing yeah. you don't get any money for it you, the research is on diabetics or people with cancer and things like that and it's the same within within sociology sport and sociology yeah. more broadly and not, we tend not, to not quickly but that reference is something that we've discussed with dean and we discussed with ben the other week and that people bodybuilders at the moment love to look for studies on things and the studies yeah. are very rarely done on on a a group of people that are relevant to us yeah people will use a study on 60 year olds men with low testosterone and relate that to 18 year old lads that are going to the gym and there's not always a direct carryover and that's one of the reasons why we need critical thinking more as well. But where there is a lot of work which does have a good overlap is in sport and drugs. Because we all know, some people try and hide it, but sport is rife with drugs. Simple as that. The higher you go, the more drugs there are. Um, so there's a lot of work on that. And there's a lot of ways of understanding it. And what, one of the guys, just, just a quick uh, name drop, because I, I'm no, by no means an expert in this area, but Paul Dimio at University of Stirling, um, he, he's the man for... If other people want to get into this and know a little bit about sports and drugs, he's the man there for that. So when we start to think about labeling, we can think about two of the key terms, deviance and stigma. So we know, you know, the word deviance, it means something straight away. You're a deviant or oh, you're bad. You're bad. It, it really in social, sociology, social theory, it's not so much that we think about that as good or bad. It's just that people deviate from the norm. So if this center, oh, 
forget you're know, just doing audio. <laughs> I'd do a bell curve, and in the bell curve, the, 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 the normal is in the middle of the bell curve, and then the deviant is at either ends of that. Yeah. So when we can kind of think about that, instead of thinking of a judgment, we can think about that as just a description of where people sit on that bell curve. So deviance theory helps us to do that. It's not a value judgment. But what we can think about in that, in that way is that bodybuilders are relatively deviant in terms of the things, the behaviors that they do and the things that they do. Uh, athletes in many senses, just a, just a bog standard normal athlete. And I talk to this about like my student, with my students all the time. You know, we have four, 400 odd students every year at Trent. And um, you get them to stand up at the beginning of the, of the course. Um, and you ask them about certain behaviors, which any normal person would think is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, training with an injury, like when you're injured, carrying on training, why would you do that? Like coming back from an injury early. Um, you know, starving yourself to make weight. What? These sort of things which become so normal to us are actually normalized within that subculture, but actually quite deviant in terms of the, the, the grand scheme of human behaviors on the whole. So what, but what that means though is that we end up with this situation where people can be stigmatized because of the things that they do, because they're not quote unquote in the normal. Then we have to think what that means. This is where this kind of notion of bodybuilders and, and drug users broadly speaking, but specifically PD users here, I guess. And to a certain extent, supplement users. I remember telling people when I was taking creatine, but well, yeah. I've taken creatine for what, 15, 20 years. Yeah. And they were like, what, what? <laughs> like, but there is now a study that shows that creatine is a gateway compound, so. There you go, we did talk about that as well. Yeah. Um, so, but, but this kind of notion of deviance and like stigmatizing people, what does that, what does that mean? So everyone, everyone can follow along with that kind of idea, because I'm sure that anyone who's, spent time in a gym doing bicep curls has been told that they're in our bed and you know stigmatized yeah, yeah. but yeah, is that correlation or causation are they in the gym doing bicep curls because they're in our bed <laughs> maybe <laughs> um but what that what, what 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 this is what we can really get into is what this means for people who are in that subculture yeah so what it tends to mean is that 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 group um my uh, my partner is Laughing around in the background. So we've got a dog issue, now a partner issue. Um, what it tends to mean is that we end up with this idea of, of let, let's, let's go straight to, let's go straight to the nitty gritty. People who are using drugs, yeah. and especially people who are abusing drugs. If they're in a world where they're stigmatized, who can they speak to? Who can they go and find knowledge from? Okay. And we know who it usually is. It's Big Bob, who's, you know, yeah, massive at the gym, the biggest guy or the leanest guy or whatever. Um, you know, not an expert. Whereas, if you think about it from a different perspective, um, a, a different drug, for example, um, one that's not stigmatized, like booze. Yeah. You know, like if, if if I want to have a chat with somebody about how much I drink and have an open conversation about that, that's not an issue. Yeah. And if I say I could do with drinking a bit less, can you help me? That's a fine conversation to be had. Yeah. Um, another way of thinking about it is performance enhancing in music. You know, think about all of the best albums over the last 60 years, almost all of them fueled by a mixture of cocaine, heroin, and acid. And that's why they're so good. Well, it's the performance enhancing. It helps people reach a different level of the, of the, of the creative process. Yeah, but those that. people aren't stigmatized. They're not stigmatized, are they? Like the, like, like the lead singer of um, the Beach Boys, Brian Harvey did acid for years, just, did, just, just acid every day. And we all know about, who's the guy, um, 
Osborne, Ozzy, Ozzy Osborne. Yeah. His, anyone wants to like learn about acid taking, just, just listen to what Ozzy Osborne did. Now, he's obviously messed himself up, but the, um, the point is, these conversations are very different with different drugs in different places. Sure. And what we know is that if drugs are legalized, liberalized, one, um, like, like there is in, 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 certain, um, in certain countries and different communities, good evidence for that, especially Portugal. Portugal is a good example. One, the usage tends to go down, especially yeah. the abusive usage, but also the education goes up. What yeah. we have in this subculture that we're talking about, just to kind of pull it back to bodybuilding, is a real absence of good knowledge. Now, your podcast, people like Dave Crossland, um, some of the really good coaches out there um, are, are providing that knowledge, but you have to really seek it out. It's not like you can go to your doctor and say, right, I'm going to do steroids. What's the best stack? Yeah, so here's a question for you. Um, yes around stigma and steroids, um, because it came up the other day for me. I asserted to my father, who is, um, he's not that old, he's 50, um, and he's not that old fashioned. He's a little bit, he's a bit old fashioned in regards to kind of the current popular topics of the world. But um, I was talking about steroids, and he was a little bit, you could tell he was a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and I said, oh, what, what's the matter? It's it's not a big deal anymore. And I, he said that maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal to you because you're around it all the time. I genuinely felt like it's something that people are more comfortable talking about now. And he is of the opinion that that's just because of the, the environment I find myself in. Yeah. Would you say from someone who's in a, a different environment? Right. Yeah, he's perfectly right. He's, he's nailed it. <laughs> he's yeah. right. It's it say right. That, yeah, it doesn't mean to say that he's right in that it is weird. It means to say that he's right and that you're embedded in a subculture which normalizes it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things Makes that he, it normal. he's never been one of those blokes to tell me what I should and shouldn't do, or not that I've listened. Um, yeah. But uh, he just doesn't want to talk about it. You do what you want, I don't really want to know. Yeah, yeah. That's how older people deal with these things, especially because, as we know, f fundamentally, older people, part of me, are going to struggle as society shifts. The older they yeah. get, society shifts more, moves away from what they experienced as normal. Um, and, and what we grow up in is, is usually what we stay thinking is normal for most of our life, unless we kind of think and reflexive, reflexive about that. But let me just finish that point off and then we'll move on a little bit. Yeah. What we end up with is what Lee Monahan, Lee Monahan, I think, at um, Ulster, and he, he's written um, a paper on this, which is, which is a good paper. And there's, there's actually very few... I would understand there's really good papers on bodybuilding strength sports for a few reasons, um, usually connected to academics not being the sort of people that do well in that sort of subculture. You know, let, let, let's be fair, most academics are nerds. By definition, they have to be. Yeah. And most nerds don't want to go and lift loads of weights. It, I, and I'm being very, I'm being mean. Um, I'm being overgeneralizing, but there's, a, there's an evident truth in also what I'm saying. It's a bit harsh. I'll probably, probably get a backlash for that. Um, we'll think we'll comment at some point. Like, yeah. So, Anyway, Lee Monaghan talks about uh, ethno-knowledge, basically knowledge within a group. Sure. And that knowledge can be fantastic. It can be really good. Ex what, what, we might call, what my PhD students work on at the minute, talking about expert lay knowledge. And what I talk about in terms of some of my work on concussion, how boxers understand concussion really, really well with no medical knowledge whatsoever yeah. because they live it and they know when they're, when they're in trouble and they can do different things to manage it. Is that healthy? Not necessarily, but their knowledge can be really detailed. Is it medical knowledge? No. Is it scientific knowledge? No, but it can still be expert knowledge. So, however, 
it opens the door for gurus, for bro science, for the biggest guy in the room is always right sort of knowledge, which is fundamentally problematic. Um, it, it, it gives us problems with critical thinking. It, it lacks the, the education which can go with it. So for example, most people, when, when, you, when you listen to a lot of podcasts, they want to know what drugs should I take? Yeah. And, and they want that to be a milligram amount or something over a course of weeks not what's the process by which i figure out what are the right drugs for what i want to achieve yeah i mean that correct answer is quite often it depends and people think it, it, it always depends right it, there's no there's no there's no perfect whatever so anyway yes well it, to a degree uh, on social media where these things are answered it's very difficult to give that kind of detailed information yeah. that's where the coaches come in but broadly speaking what the point i'm trying to make is that because this stuff is stigmatized, because it's subcultural and it's in these tight little groups and no one dares talk outside of these groups about it. Yes, that's changing, but you know, it's still not something that people talk about a lot. That knowledge stays very insular and it stays within that space. And if you're powerful in that space and powerful by powerful, I mean like basically the biggest, it can yeah. lift the most, maybe even the most shredded or now with social media, the one who looks the best. So that could be genetic. Yeah. So like some dude who just has to look, what did I hear somebody say the other day? I think it was um, Broderick Chavez. Oh no, it might've been, might've been on your podcast, yeah. actually. Um, somebody just has to look at a car phrase machine and their traps go. Well, it's Ben talking about it. on your podcast. Yeah, <laughs> and I know the story with that because I used to chat with Ben lots and lots when him and Luke were trained together. And, and I, I, like even on the subject of drugs, Ben will be quite happy with saying, Ben used to take far, far more drugs than, than Luke ever took. To, to just barely keep up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the point is that, that if someone has those genetic kind of gifts, then people just follow them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they don't have to have good knowledge, one. But two, they might have, they might have perfect knowledge. They might be genetically gifted and brainily gifted yeah. and nail it. But they, but they invariably aren't. Um, again, Bray Chavez, you hear him talk about um, Ronnie Coleman. He's very yeah. mean about Ronnie Coleman's intelligence. Um, but he's the man, right? He, he's the he's the he's the guy. So anyway, the, the genetic testing on Ronnie Coleman. No, no. So he literally has every single gene expression you can have for building muscle, <laughs> and every single gene expression nice. for losing fat, um, as nice. well as like a myostatin deficiency. Like he was bred to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the rumor why you'd ever the rumor is that he's so. pro natural, um, and it's 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 been corroborated by quite a few people that he didn't know what steroids were until he got, got his pro card and the guys were like, you know, what are you doing? And he wasn't doing anything. Wow. So anyway, those sort of people can and do, especially on social media, not Ronnie Coleman, but you, you know, influencer <laughs> here. Yeah. And they, they, they can say what they like and people are like, oh my God, you look so good, you must be right. Yeah. Whereas actually, to be fair, there's, there's people, and, and, and my gym's a classic one, there's, a, there's, there's personal trainers in there who are, absolutely terrible yeah and they look the part and they get clients and then there's personal trainers in there who have battled like like i have and most people have battled with trying to stay in shape trying to not get injured trying to not be fat trying to be a bit bigger all your life yeah they're the people that know stuff because they've had to educate themselves still yeah. anyway the, the point then though is that this this opens up these spaces for a lack of critical thinking lack of really good knowledge and yeah. also for people to not really understand stuff about health and well-being and all that sort of stuff, which as we've talked a few times and as Strom is a good example of, 
only more recently have people started to really think about health and health also and performance, health enabling performance, but also health after you finish and just, you know, I want to be big, but I want to live as long as I can as well sort of thing. Well, I think Those ideas are you know, recently. Bodybuilders are inherently very, very self-involved, um, uh, selfish people. And, and I say that as someone who was a bodybuilder, when I was a bodybuilder, I was definitely more selfish and more self-involved. Um, and it stands to reason that those people are going to be the kind of people that are going to be particularly keen on not dying. Um, so when they're finished with the bodybuilding, they're going to go, fuck, I might have fucked oh, up dude. here. We need to fix that. Um, so a proactive approach, I think originally a proactive approach was, was about that, but actually people have started to realise that a healthier body is a, a better performing body, is, is a better growing body. Um, and, and even things like um, your liver values being out of whack. You know, 10 years ago, we didn't have the facility to do blood work every month and see how things like your liver value, your liver not being efficient might affect muscle protein synthesis. You know, we haven't got the studies on that yet, but we can certainly anecdotally say, well, when people's blood work is closer to normal range, they seem to respond better to inputs. Yeah. 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 But that, all that sort of stuff has to fight its way into these little subcultures. Massively. People are labeled in certain ways. So that's, that's kind of like that kind of opening kind of gambit as to where some of that fits. And that helps us to understand the subculture, which yeah. can then help us to understand what becomes normal. So this is kind of moving on to the next idea. This notion of normal, I think, is really interesting. Really interesting for COVID at the minute. Really interesting for Brexit and a lot of these things. What is normal? How is normal produced over time? Who thinks what's normal in what space and what is abnormal in a different space? Yeah. One of the examples I give for this is um, what I haven't mentioned is that um, at one point I was when I was studying at Loughborough, I trained and worked at Powerbase. Lots of people know Powerbase. Um, while I was in there, I was also doing some research in a boxing gym. Uh, sorry, a bodybuilding gym, proper spit and sawdust bodybuilding gym. And I heard people talking. I was a little bit out of it. I didn't really understand. Oh, oh, sorry, one other thing. I was also young enough to be going out a lot. And I was in these three different subcultures. And I'd hear people talking about gear, yeah. gear, and gear. And I was always hearing this word gear. And there were three different oh, things. <laughs> three different gears. Now, you, you can probably guess what I'm talking about. When I was going out, it was cocaine. That was gear. When I was in the spit and sawdust bodybuilding gym, it was steroids, etc. When I was in power base, it was lifting gear. Yeah. So it was more about what, where those bench vests are. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so, so, and then what was interesting was that same word, three different subcultures, and because I was doing research at the time, I asked people about what they thought about gear. Yeah. So if you were out, I wasn't doing research in the outness, but I'd ask people anyway, you know, what do you think about gear? They'd be like, yeah, well, cocaine is wicked. And they'd be like, what do you think about steroids? Like, well, steroids are horrific. I'd never do that. Yeah. And then you'd be in the gym and you'd say to a bodybuilder, what do you think about gear? And it'd be like, well, yeah, I need steroids. Yeah. And I'd be like, what about, what about cocaine? But, oh, well, yeah, it's not so bad. And then you ask him about lifting gear. And he'd be like, no, that's for, I was going to say something mean. That's, for weak, that's for weak people. Yeah. Um, so the, the point there is what becomes normal in different subcultural spaces really interacts with, sorry, we interact with that notion of what's normal. We make it even what's normal. But also from one different space to another, we look at each other's different normals and we think they're all weird. Yeah. So from one gym, you're talking about gear and it's normal. The other gym, talking about gear and it's normal. But when they meet, it's not. Yeah. This is that kind of, that element again of labeling as well. Like one man's drug, sorry, one man's, rub, one man's um, 
one man's rubbish is one man's fortune. What's the phrase? Um, it's the same with this in terms of drug use. Yeah. Some people will talk about certain drugs as horrific, the yeah. worst thing in the world ever. And then some people will talk about that same drug and be like, yeah, it's not that bad. Um, one thing that I mentioned to you is in this notion of, of insulin. Yeah. That, that when you were talking to, uh, sorry, is it Ben? Ben, yeah. Insulin, yeah. And DM, insulin and DMP are the two that, even among yeah. people that are experienced, people will turn around and go, holy fuck, that shit will kill you. And, and the answer is that yeah. anything will kill you if, if you don't know what yeah. you're doing, I guess. And, and actually, yeah. both of those drugs do have a, a risk element, but if you know what you're doing, they, they shouldn't. Yeah. Same as paracetamol, isn't it? Like, yeah. You know, if you want to kill yourself with paracetamol, you can. But, but insulin is, is, you know, whenever I've heard people talking about this, I've heard, you know, consistent drug takers, oh, I'd never touch that because you'll kill yourself. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most, if you actually think about the, the physiology of it, it's one of the most light touch drugs, yeah. uh, I, I would yeah, yeah. describe it. Um, uh, one of the most light touches you could do. I mean, in terms of long-term effects, as long yeah. as you stay fit and healthy, you, know, you do your cardio, there's even, to the side. there's even uh, information around if, if you were to use a small amount of insulin when you're very much in your off season, it improving insulin sensitivity by taking strain off the beta cells in your pancreas and improving insulin sensitivity. Kind of in the same way that a GDA would. I think one of the problems with insulin is that the 90s protocols, I don't know if you've ever looked them up, I sent you some books the other day. Um, the 90s protocols, they were things like, oh, they were like the hypermassive protocol and stuff like that. And they'd involve you shooting like 40 IU of insulin around a training session while you drink a crazy concoction of various carbohydrates and stuff. And that's right, the kind of stuff right. people can find themselves in a bad yeah. place. But the, the yeah. slightly more thinking approach that people take now really shouldn't, shouldn't cause any problems. Um, I guess it's just but, tools and jobs. The, well, the key is, it's not, it's not the drug, it's the lack of knowledge. Yeah. So then we go back to what I was talking about earlier. With these little subcultures, if there's no knowledge, there's no like, understanding, there's no, like, you just get told by big bob to big do loads of insulin and then, and then you take his dose and you've, you're effed like yeah. okay well i'm not doing that again whereas if these things were spoken about talked about normalized as something you could have open conversations with people about it yeah issues wouldn't be there it, and, and, and andrew i was talking to you i mentioned this earlier as well andrew andrew triana in a, a podcast with Roderick chavez and alex kekel was he was basically saying especially with athletes this is the first thing they should be doing. They shouldn't be doing steroids. They should be doing um, insulin to help them train themselves to work harder, to get the carbohydrate, carbohydrates in. And, uh, what kind of athletes does he work with form? primarily? Say again? What kind of athletes does he work with primarily? Athletes. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, 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 probably a mix. I can but, say it's an argument for it. Yeah. The, the point isn't whether he's right or wrong. The, the, more, the more point is he's critically considered that. And yeah. he's, not, he's not gone with insulin's bad. He's gone, right, let's, look, let's understand the physiology here. Let's, let's, let's figure this through. Well, actually, it makes some sense. Um, so I guess the, the kind of overarching point is to kind of be able to kind of think through what these normalized terms are yeah. and to think through what that means and be able to not just go, all oh, right, well, that's bad because I've heard that word before. So this is this notion of what becomes normal. Um, one of the key elements here that my work fits into is performance ideologies. Performance is normal. Focus on performance. Everything's got to be about performance. I must perform better. If I don't perform better, I'm worthless. That is basically the principle of elite sport. Consistently perform better until you win everything. And if, you get, if anything gets in your way of that, smack it away and perform better. Now, 
there's a lot to be said for that. There's a lot to be said for performing better just in life more broadly. But a complete focus, if that's the only thing that's normal, the only thing in your little cultural space is normal to, to, to be 100% about performance. What does that mean? Well, it means thinking about health is not normal. Balancing that kind of performance element is, 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 not, is not normal by considering it in, in its relation to health. What you can also do when you think about this notion of normal and deviance again, if I think it's normal to focus on health, and this is what happens a lot in sports teams, sorry, normal to focus on performance, and I want to get better because I'm in the second team, I want to be in the first team, well, I better focus on performance some more. And sure. what then we turn to is what, what um, classic piece of work I always rely on. And if anybody wants any of this stuff, I, I mean, I can't send them books, but I'll happily send them papers. Classic piece of work by Hughes and Coakley about the sports ethic. It's not ethics, it's sports ethic. And what, the, what they talk about in that is what's normal in sport, elite sport. And then what happens if you overconform to that, i.e. do more of it. Right. So an overconforming athlete is someone who realizes they've got to perform more. So turns up to training early, stays afterwards, yeah. goes home, has some food, does some more training before bed, wakes up the next day, bit tired, does some, goes for a road run, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. until they run themselves into a hole. Now I add that, add drugs into the mix. If I want to get better, drugs have helped. Oh, best do some more drugs. And very quickly, if you're only focusing on performance, which we know a lot of people do, um, or, or physique or whatever, you're only like, my physique has got to be better. That's still focus on performance, not just lifting better, but yeah. I've got to get bigger guns. If you consistently focus on that and you add drugs into the mix, you're not only overtraining, but you're doing all of the stuff that can be really damaging with drugs. Now, as you know, I'm relatively like, I'm, I'm pro-drugs in a variety of ways. Yeah. But I'm not pro-abuse of drugs. Sure. And that's where, we, that's where people get into the problem. I'm, I, I, want, I want a liberalization of almost all drugs. There's some, there's some clarification on that. But almost all drugs yeah. are be liberalized. But because uh, there are some issues with, like you say, DMP and heroin and a couple of other bits of drugs. But we don't get into the details. Largely speaking, I think drugs should be legal. Because then that becomes able to be educated about and talked about then this notion of overconforming to it and doing more of what you think is good to get these performance benefits in a subculture which doesn't talk about health yeah. and start to be eroded. So that's where we kind of think about these kind of notions of um, overconformity. Where I've done the most work on this is on percussion, really, is yeah. on boxers, young boxers especially, taking hits to the head and knowing they've got to keep going. What, what happens if you keep getting hit to the head? <laughs> it's like, it's so, so simple. But yeah. if you've constantly been told as a young boy, especially young boys, I mean, I, you know, I know, I know we've got to be very careful here, but the sports we're talking about are dominated by young boys and men. Yeah. Um, yeah, don't worry about the NPC on our podcast. It's, um, you know, well, I, know, I, I do, because I've written, I've, I've written, a, I've edited a book on women in combat sports. So I, I do have to be slightly careful, but, and, and, and the thing, I'll explain in a second, but, Let's stay with the boys for a minute and then I'll, un I'll unpick my sexism in a second. <laughs> you're being constantly taught as a young boy, which happens, you've got to do better, you've got to achieve, you've got to, do, you've got to be strong, you've got to be able to look after yourself. Then you go into a boxing gym, you're primed to be pushed by that coach. In the wrong coach's hands, these malleable young people will push and push and push and push and push. Then they get a little bit of um, success. Now they're the boxer that's good. Now you've got to keep going. Now you've got to keep going. You probably sack school off a little bit. Now you've got to keep going more because you've got to make success out of boxing. And this is how people can end up in real big, real, real problems. And it's exactly the same process for bodybuilding. Yeah. It's no different. 
keep pushing, keep pushing. Oh, people are saying I've got bigger. Well, well I'll do a bit more then. Yeah. That's where we get into this problem. Now, just to unpick my sexism slightly, these spaces are dominated by men still. They're codified by men, they have been. When women come into those spaces, they largely conform to the male way of doing it. Yeah. This is one of the problems where we get into kind of masculinity theory, which we'll talk about in a bit as well. Um, and why masculinity theory is deficient in, in some of these areas. But largely, you, you find now that this is problematic, is that women are coming into these spaces um, and having to conform to the way that dudes do stuff and men do stuff. And it's damaging to men. It's damaging to women. It is, yeah. it's, it's, it's horrific for everyone. So we're kind of bringing about equality by having women into boxing gyms, which is great. But it's equality in getting concussion. Right, yeah. <laughs> is well, that something yeah. we need equality in? <laughs> well, you, you we have it in everything. That's the rule. rule. Well, exactly. Uh, and, and then the same with bodybuilding. Far more, I assume, you, you know much better than me, I'm, I am speaking out of turn here, but I'm assuming there's far more drug use in women's elite bodybuilding than there ever, than there ever was. I know. There's certainly more in the amateur. Yeah. There's certainly more in the amateur. Yeah. Certainly more at local shows, and there's certainly more with women that are maybe competing at like a bikini level that really shouldn't need it. Um, yeah. at the I did, sorry, I did... I had a dissertation student this year do stuff on CrossFit. I mean, that, that, that place is rife, right? Yeah. And it might not be like the really oh. abusive stuff, but clenbuterol and whatever else. And yeah, those guys cool. are doing quite a lot. So, and and that, that crosses over to the women quite a lot, I think. But yeah, no, so, so the women's one's funny because I think women now talk about it. I think when I started, it was like super, like to even ask a woman if they use anything was really taboo. Um, right. And, and people, are, people are more open about it now. Um, there are there the big thing with the women's stuff is that there's a huge amount of bad advice out there, and um, I suppose just like with boxing, if something's damaging to a man with a female, it could be much worse. If if a female takes bad advice and she takes like testosterone that virilizes, those changes are permanent. It's not like when a man does a oh, bad yeah. cycle and they 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 have some some anxiety issues or they don't sleep well at while or whatever. It, it, it's a permanent issue for a female, um, and I think it, it's a completely different topic that's interesting. And I, I need to cover it with a female because that covers me. Like if I want to talk about Black Lives Matter, I need to do it with Zach, my athlete on here, so I don't get in trouble. Um, I think what happens with a lot of the women is they end up going down a path where they cause themselves a lot of irrealization and changes in their body. And then they have to take ownership of that and say, oh, that's what I wanted. Because otherwise they'll yeah. feel um, perhaps quite bad about it. Um, and I've, I've spoken to women that have said that that's what happened. They've been pushed down that road by, by coaches or or boyfriends, and then once they've kind of started down that road, you're committed, so you might as well crack the fuck up. And what you've just done there is, is a classic sociological analysis. That, that is, here's a social norm, I've taken it on board, oh, something's happened, it's now part of my identity, I've got to keep going, and I've yeah. got to keep pushing. And again, you get yourself into a hole, don't you? you get, this is now me. My identity is surrounded by this. Uh, one of the things I have a problem with, it, with, with students at university, that our university students, um, well, brutal statement. If you're at university, 99.9% .9 of the time, you're not going to make it in any sport because you're already at university. Yeah. yeah. Say that to them. They hate me for it. 18 year olds, 18 year olds, week one, you're failures. You have failed at sport, right? And, and it's just to get them to realize that sport is about chewing up young bodies and smashing them out, and they're already done. Point yeah. is, what, what was my point? Um, the point is that when you kind of start to understand that that's the, 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 the premise of sport, if you attach your identity to that and nothing else, not education, and you go down that route, 
and then you have a bad injury, your ACL blows or whatever, what have you got left? Yeah. yeah um, and, and I say this to them, I'm like, look, you know, you're not athletes. Yes, I know you love playing sport. Of course you love playing sport. We all love playing sport. We're here to study. And do not let your identity be attached to the second division foosball team that you play in or whatever you do at university. And they do. They, they, get, they get obsessed with it, even low-level university sport. And they sacrifice their degrees at times. Not, not completely, that's straight out the window, but I've known students who have really struggled because they've got so embedded in sports subcultures rather than education. Anyway, it grabs hold of you. Bodybuilding, though. There are bodybuilders that lose jobs and relationships for a sport that they're never going to be any more than mediocre at. Because the guys who aren't going to be mediocre at it don't have to sacrifice for them. Not that they don't have to sacrifice, they, they have to work. But if you have to push that hard that you're having to throw your life away for it, it it's not going to happen for you, you know. Yeah, yeah. As discussed, some people they just it just works for them. It's it's a sport where everyone likes everything to be fair. Everyone society has to be fair and everything has to be equal. Unfortunately, you can't equalize everyone's genetics. Definitely, yeah, definitely. So we touched a little bit on kind of man and male dominance of these spaces. Um, I've written on that. I've written a paper called the male about the male preserve, the preserve of sport as one of the last bastions of yeah, male dominance and power. Um, but that leads us into masculinity theory, which is something I wanted to talk about a little bit as well. Largely because I have a fundamental problem with masculinity theory. I think it's a bit, a lot of it is really naff. The sociology of uh, masculinity is really, really naff. Is there an overview really that you maybe don't know? Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah I'll give you a quick overview. So I mean, a, simple, a simple way of understanding it is men's identities as men. People who identify as men, as they understand themselves as men, what does that mean? Should a man be strong, maybe aggressive at times, powerful, stoic, all that sort of stuff? Yes. Now, we already know that there's very many different ways of being a man. You can identify as a man who's not aggressive, still masculinity. But there is this notion of a kind of a dominant masculinity, which yeah. we can kind of draw a picture of. If I ask my students to draw a picture of that, they can do that. He's usually got big muscles. <laughs> Might have tattoos, for example. Or a skinhead. Um, so... We can kind of think about it. So, so there's two things here. One is the early work on masculinity in sport was, was, was relatively good. It's quite simple. But it was relatively good. It showed that if, if people really, again, overconformed to these notions of what a man should and shouldn't do, that can lead to lots and lots and lots and lots of problems in sport. Um, and you hear it whenever you watch stuff, um, some of these old documentaries about the NHL players or the NFL players who got hooked on... Um, uh, the aggressive players and then got hooked on painkillers, yeah, because they had to keep going. Like, a lot of that, when you hear them talking, there's these undertones of masculinity in there. You know, this is what I have to do. This is how I protect my family, those sort of ideas. Yeah. Um, so some of the early work was really, really useful. But what's tended to happen, and to start, as these terms have become more um, embedded in kind of normal society, you everyone's heard of toxic masculinity. Yeah. <laughs> Can't, can't stand that for different reasons. But as these terms have become more embedded as a kind of normal part of discourse in, in, in like day-to-day -day language, they've been reduced of the academic complexity and the nuance of the academic, of the, the nuance of the academic arguments. And also more broadly, the actual data that stuff's based on. So what people tend to do is go, oh, that's masculinity and use stereotypes. Uh, let me give you a, a good example. Uh, go, again, back to my power, power base days. Um, when I was, because I, I worked in Powerbase, as I said, and I worked with uh, Rich Ellis, who um, on Instagram is Big Bench RE, I think. Yeah, I know that name. Um, I might be a customer. He works with uh, Jordan Peters. Oh, okay. 
Um, he's one of Jordan's athletes. He, he probably has. I, I know he's he's recommend he recommended your um, joint to me. Oh, okay. I was already taking it when yeah. we talked about my dodgy knees. Yeah. Um, so he does know of your stuff. But anyway, Rich, when we were, I was studying and working in there, and I'd hear the undergrads as I was an undergrad. Um, I'd hear the undergrads talk about him because he worked in power base with me, and they wouldn't know that I necessarily knew him. And you'll hate me for talking about this, but they called him King Base, as in. He's the king of power base. King oh, I thought you meant in terms of base. No, 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 no. Different thing. So, but, so, so this would be accompanied with clearly an assumption that Rich Ellis is, because he's, he's fucking massive. Yeah. <laughs> he's massive. And he's one of the strongest dudes I've ever, he's the strongest dude I've ever met by a long way. Um, me. Yes. He, this is accompanied by an assumption, a lot of assumptions about what Rich Ellis is. Sure. He's scary, yeah, yeah. he's powerful, he's this like just this ogre who dominates power base. Now, I knew Rich Ellis, and most people who know Rich Ellis will say exactly the same as me. He's one of the nicest, caringest, <clears throat> calmest, kindest people you'll ever be lucky enough to meet. Yeah. But these people see Rich Ellis, label him using masculinity label him using size and muscle as something and then that gets passed around the university and all of a sudden king base is someone to be feared yeah he's a, he, he, like if i if i have a question about supplements to come to you if i have a question about training i go to him yes yeah. he's always there to chat with we always have a great conversation so my point there is this lack between the social theories and social ideas and actual data and evidence and a lot of the stuff around all of these things that we've talked about with bodybuilding powerlifting now masculinity is based on a lot of assumptions by academics and you've seen it i've sent you some work where you've read it and you're like why are they saying that if they've never been in a gym and yeah. sometimes i think sometimes they have not been in a gym how many pieces of research i've done uh, sorry i've seen done with surveys about supplement use yeah and then inferred that all these people are doing all this stuff it's like well, hold on have you asked them have you watched them have you seen whether they're actually doing this as how they say it or are they doing something else or I guess it leads on to the kind of way in which I've done my research, which is getting into these spaces and living in them. That's why I took a boxing. Um, going and living with them, living with the people in those spaces and talking to them and finding out about them and preserving them over a long period of time, what I call immersive research. Yeah. Um, so one, of, one, one other bit of that, um, just to link in, is um, that book that I sent you, Hoberman, what's the title again? Mortal Engines. Yeah. So John Hoberman, he, he's written a book, Mortal Engines. He's also done Darwin's Athletes, both great books. You can probably find, if anyone's interested in some of this stuff, probably find them on Amazon for relatively cheap, but also a cracker called Testosterone, Testosterone Dreams. Yeah. And in it, he talks about testosterone having a folklore. Now, when I was in one of the boxing gyms, we'd knock her out with, sorry, I just touched my headphones now, sorry. Bodybuilding lads. So we'd be like, relatively lean and fast and fit and then the bodybuilding lads and 20 stone goliaths would come in and boxers it was fucking you know it was, it was loads of fun hilarious because of that some of the lads started to get some knowledge about hormones yeah specifically testosterone yeah and this is going to link back to masculinity theory in a minute when i used to ask these lads about why they boxed why they enjoyed boxing in effect beating each other up why the, why the hell do we like beating each other up a lot of their answers would draw back on it's testosterone. I literally have had someone say to me, it's testosterone and that. 
or genes. It's in your genes, you. I've had people say to me, you publish quotes in. Say again? It's testosterone and that. Yeah, and that. Okay, as in, and all the other stuff that I don't understand. <laughs> now, a biologist will be listening to this and they'll go, yeah, but there is an element of testosterone being that. Yeah. Okay, there might be. Do these lads in the gym who, even if I'm being kind, don't have the best education in the world, do these lads know what their testosterone levels are? <laughs> no. When you ask them about what the difference between men and women are, it's, well, lads are testosterone and women are estrogen. Yeah. Not knowing the complexities of the cascadal system and all, and all that sort of stuff. We don't need to get into that, I'm sure. Dr. Dean can, can go into that far more better than me. But the point is, not the, whether they're right or wrong, the point is the association of testosterone to something uniquely male, yeah. something about aggression or whatever, without any knowledge whatsoever of what's happening in their bodies. Yeah. No knowledge whatsoever, but use an explanation. It justifies those behaviours. Yeah. So what I do is I go in like, I, I had to learn how to be aggressive in boxing. So I've always been relatively anti-violent never really punched anyone until I started boxing. I had to learn to punch people hard. I could punch people, but I could, only, I could never punch them hard. Yeah. It took me 10 years to, to learn how to try and knock someone out. Literally 10 years of, of boxing to be aggressive enough to unlearn that I should never be aggressive. Yeah. That's, got nothing to do with, that's got nothing to do with testosterone. No, that's, just be a pussy. that's literally me taking 10 years to learn how to not be a pussy. Yeah. And Sorry, I shouldn't say that. I, I do have to remember, you can say that stuff, I can't say I can say what I want, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I apologise for saying that. Also, uh, what I should have said is, to stop being weak and to throw a punch like a properly mean it to try and hurt someone. Yeah. Ten years to learn that. Eventually I learned it. But some people anyway, don't have to learn that, do they? Some people just know that. No, no. And maybe they learned that when they were younger, whatever. Maybe it is a testosterone element. The point is, a, as Hoberman says, there's a hormonal folklore attached to testosterone. Yeah. which justifies it becomes normal oh men have testosterone therefore and then yeah. the, therefore is followed by behaviors and you list your behaviors yeah. punching someone uh slapping slapping my wife you know yeah. I, I, i've heard data of that oh i just you know i lost it i've been training and my testosterone was high Boof. yeah that sort of idea i've never heard that quote actually but i've had this person i'm talking about explain hitting his wife due to these issues yeah that sort of idea it, it, it again it's this it's this normal idea and if there's this normal idea that there's something uniquely male in testosterone and that all of us have got it yeah. then it becomes one deviant to not do it yeah. why, why are you behaving like that but also justifiable legitimate if it's justifiable and legitimate to do things because of test the notion of testosterone made me do it well then you can learn it yeah. Then in certain subcultures, you can be encouraged for it. And then you do it more. And now we start to kind of link, let's link back to bodybuilding and whatnot. Same sort of thing here. People start to identify in certain ways. They get encouraged with that, these stories that we tell ourselves, whether it's hormonal or not, just indications yeah. for people. You can, you, can, you can take that on board. You can live into it and you can grow into it and you get rewarded by it and it keeps going and it keeps going. And it's these kind of cycles, which, as you started out with the podcast, make us do some of the stupid stuff that we do. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good way to kind of like link some of those ideas in, in terms of um, testosterone. That's actually, if anybody wants it in a paper um, called, well, it's got biology ideology in it, that we can have biological thinking as ideological. So if anybody wants that, just drop me an email. 
So yeah, um, one other point before we move on, and we may have to wrap up, you have to tell me, but that sort of depth of data doesn't come from a survey, right? Yeah. That comes from being in a gym with a bunch of meatheads for yeah. ages. Yeah, you can't just go in and get it in a week. You've got to be give, you've got to become no. a that click to be given that information. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is where my my kind of if I'm if I'm known for anything in kind of academia, which I'm probably not, this is my contribution, is that sort of like getting into those spaces. Now, you set it up earlier. Yes, I've got tattoos. I up until recently had a skinhead, I've got a lockdown crap haircut now that I've done myself. Um, but I can fit into those spaces. I've got the accent that fits. I, I, I look relatively athletic. <laughs> so, so yeah. I, I can get away with looking a little bit sporty. Yeah. Uh, I, can, I can jump up and down. I can do things. I can, I can hold my own in those spaces. But the reason I mentioned that, I suppose, is because, because of the way people operate. If I'd said that you're Dr. Christopher Matthews, they can't see a picture of you. I know there's a picture on the podcast artwork. Um, and I introduced you as professor of sociology. There's this instant mental image that comes with like a sweater with elbow patches and so on. And a large portion of people go, well, he, I can't relate to him. Yeah, I've got a fucking clue about why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but by having that, having that kind of, it's a strength and a weakness, obviously. Um, but by having that, it enables you to get academics. Say again? I'm sure it causes you problems with other academics. Uh, not so much academics, just walking down the street. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, but what that means is, and why this is kind of useful for us to understand is that it, it helps me get into those subcultures we've been talking about. It helps me be accepted in those subcultures. Now, other people can get into those in different ways. Another one of our mentors, Kath Woodward, she spent a lot of time in a boxing gym. You can tell by the name that she's not a normal person who goes into boxing because just by nature of being a women, woman, not many women go into boxing gyms. She at the time was an older woman, but she was accepted in a different way. So you can get into these subcultures in a different way. She was accepted as someone to be caring and, look, and looked after some of the fighters. Oh. Yeah, exactly. It can happen, but it's on a different set of terms often. Um, my PhD student at the minute, she is a Muslim woman, kickboxer. Right, she okay. gets into the subcultures in really interesting, different ways to me. Draws on some of the stuff that I, I do. She has far more fights than me. Um, but obviously has difficulties in different ways as well. Different, I mean, just basic access, access to the boys' changing rooms, you know what I mean? But she can get different data. Anyway, I guess what I'm getting at is that a lot of the stuff that we know in these sort of areas is, is this kind of survey stuff, this assumption stuff. Oh, all those lads are doing drugs because of their masculinity. It's toxic or something. What? Yeah. Do we know? No. Well, let's go and find out. Let's go and ask them. And let's just not ask them with a survey. Let's go and get into that gym and spend a year with them and see at the end of that, Yes, there's going to be one horrible, nasty meathead in there who conforms to every single stereotype you've ever met. Most of them aren't. Most of them are going to be just nice dudes. Yeah. And they're going to be doing whatever they're doing for whatever reasons. And it's not usually the obvious one. They might want to be a bit leaner, yeah. They might want to be a bit bigger. There might be some element of personal pride in that. That's not the whole story. It's usually because they love lifting weights. A they big... like the consistency. There's a lot more complexity to it. In terms of the people I've been dealing with on the data, I used to deal with a lot of young kids and I used to, we talked about before, when, when I first really launched strong, I put a lot of effort into my appearance. I was a lot bigger, a lot more muscular. And uh, I would get lots of young lads that would come to me that wanted to. I, I had people come in the shop and say, I want to be about your size, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. What I find now is I get lots of people coming to me that are in their late 30s, early 40s, who are, they're starting to realize that they need to put some time into themselves and that there's lots of things that they can do and they want to speak to someone right. who um 
who, who they don't perceive as a meathead, I guess. Right. Um, and I think I think I give them someone that's accessible to talk to. Um, but it's, it's it's quite a dramatic shift. That's I'm sure there were guys in that age range doing it before, but there seems to be a big spike yeah. in it at the moment. Yeah. Again, whether that's a social acceptability thing or I don't know. I don't know why it is. It might be it might be more my image has changed than. Yeah, yeah, and and I think with those sort of issues around, uh, all, all I want to do with with those sort of conversations is for people to understand that to get to really know somebody is a real good part of research. And to get to know the motivations for people, you can't often, you can do some stuff with survey research. It gets a lot of numbers back. It gets a lot of people in. Some stuff in the lab. You can't get to know someone. And getting to know someone is our most unique human research method. It's the thing that we do. It's how we live our lives. That's basically what my research is. Just, it's a formalization, a systemization of, of how we get to know people in a general sense. A lot of that, though, is, is you know, it's qualitative research. This is not the stuff that people are like, there's a study that proves that. But it's really, really useful. As you know, Some of the stuff that we, we've just sketched over, a load, a load of stuff. You know, there's modules and modules and modules that we deliver on this sort of stuff at university. And when I'm, I'm, doing a, I'm on a sports science degree, so imagine what the sociology degrees are like. Yeah. And the depth of stuff that you get into this, when you start to kind of realize already in built in us as human beings, there's an ability to understand each other and communicate with each other. And yeah. That should, can, and should be a fundamental part of research, especially if you want to know some of these issues, like we've talked about, why do people do stupid things that we do? You, um, you just mentioned about university, and I think it's something that would be quite interesting. It's something that I'm personally interested in. Um, you mentioned at the start about why should people still look at traditional academia when there's so many tools out there for self-learning? I think that's a really interesting topic. Um, yeah. Something yeah. That I think my subculture very much now dismisses. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's becoming obviously a hot topic because our students coming in this year with COVID are going to get far less what we might call FaceTime um so what does that mean what are they paying for now they're paying for these kind of long long distance lectures or something and people are kind of seeing that as some sort of problem i don't think it is at all uh, we don't need to get into that too much simply to say the value of a distance learning degree should be as good as one way you're there every day should be whether it is or not is university and course dependent um i will say as well in our degree program we have such a good good team young team that our distance learning, the bits of it that we'll do will be amazing. Anyway, but the, the actual point, and I'm glad you asked me because I, I, I did want to talk about this. The point of what's, the, well, what is the point of university education? And the money that's attached to it, I was lucky enough to, to get through my um, studies before the big fee hike came up. I was one of those four grand a year sort of students rather than this nine grand a year. And I was also lucky enough to work through university. So that, that's something that people should be looking at. But you're right, you know, there's a lot of people, in fact, most of the people, sorry, let me reframe that. There's a lot of people who know a lot, very good knowledge without any formal higher education in bodybuilding. Very, very good. Um, and they, can, they have proved the um, ability to self-educate is there. But those people are relatively unique, um, relatively unique in their work ethic and in their mental capacities, I think. What we specialize in at university still, this will, this will not change, not change in my lifetime. What we specialize in and do, do better than anyone else is give people a well-rounded general knowledge in the first year. 
So specifically on our sports science degree, we have four different degrees connected. 450 students will have this year come in. And the first year for all of those students on the different degrees is always the same. They get a knowledge of physiology, psychology, biomechanics, nutrition, sociology, some of the bits and bobs as well, sport business. Get all of that general knowledge at 18. <clears throat> when for the most people, they're eight, your brain at 18 isn't ready for much. Mine wasn't. I didn't start studying properly until I was mid-20s. And at that point, I was still a child. I, was still a child. I had a business. And I still had male, basically. Yeah. So the point is, once you've got that baseline, second year, third year, you move into these more specific modules, you start to develop it, you start to have modules that you, you select, choice modules, and you start to kind of drive your interest levels. When you finish that program, you have an, an overarching understanding of it for me sports science what does that mean all of those different topics that i talked about that means that although i'm an expert in sociology if me and you talk about um physiology i can hold my own with you we can we can discuss these things relatively simply because i have a good basis of it if i watch podcasts from muscle mentors and they're talking about biomechanics i'm like yeah yeah i understand all those levers and all that sort of stuff and i communicate in that language no problem whatsoever if you're involved in sport and you want that baseline knowledge to get that is very hard on your own yeah you can get specific so you can disappear down rabbit holes about growth hormone and you yeah. can you can nail it and you can be the foremost expert in growth hormone and got a clue about what a lever length is my point is in the world that we're increasingly in yes you need to have that specialized element and you can get that on your own and actually universities don't really give that they do in the dissertation but you have to go and get it yourself in, through the dissertation process but what universities give is this real deep all-round knowledge which then you can apply to whatever you want to apply for apply it to if you want to be in sport you want to be personal training you want to be an online coach you want to be do whatever you want to do in sport those degrees still have a lot of legitimacy and also you're driven to do work you have to do work there's no like oh i'm not motivated to do this well all right see ya yeah you'll fail so you've got to do it so there's a real legitimacy there still and one of the points <clears throat> The world we're currently in um who knows where we're going to be in three years time yeah it's all it's all someone's just like picked the world up chucked it in the air and smacked it with a baseball bat and we've got to let everything settle one of the best places to be for three years is in a university skiving off <laughs> um working diligently yeah, I mean, under someone things, like me you, you might correct me here one of the things that i think going to universities should give you particularly in like sports fields, and if you're interested in the kind of stuff we talk about, is the ability to look at studies and research things yourself and actually understand. Yes. What I see a lot of on social media now is people being told, go do your own research, and then people will go, oh. in the worst case, they'll go and read an article on teen nutrition or something, and they think that's doing research. But in, the, yeah. in, in a, a somewhat better scenario, they'll go and read published medical studies, they'll go and read university papers, but they'll cherry pick or they'll see the data they want to see. They'll take what they want to take from them. And that... Yeah. That is a constant source of frustration because you will get messages from people who think that they've worked it all out that haven't got a yeah. fucking clue. Um, because understanding the way in which these things are written is a skill. It's a skill that I'm still working on, a skill that I hope to improve on over the next couple of years. Um, but it is a skill that you need to learn. And I think university gives you a, a good background in doing that. Yeah, you, you basically get your hand held through that. Whereas doing it without your hand held is a nightmare to try and figure out where you start on PubMed. Everyone talks about PubMed. I never use PubMed, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway, point, point is, you need that kind of basis. You need to understand what science is. You need to understand that one paper you know, doesn't change the world. 
You need to understand. Come here. Oh, sorry. Um, you need to understand where these bits of the puzzle fit in with other disciplines. To think of all that sort of stuff. You know, like don't don't worry about the nuances of growth hormone until you understand the Krebs cycle. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's no papers written about the Krebs cycle. That's in a textbook. Go to a goddamn textbook and read the textbook. That's well, how you get that kind of base knowledge. That's the same as, as all the things with, with bodybuilding. It's the same as with training. It's the same as with nutrition. People worry Hopefully. about the carb timing in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When they don't know how many calories are eating. Yes, yes, yes. So that, that's where that fits in. Now, do, do you have to do it by university? Of course not. Is it, do we churn out a lot of good students and, and, real solid foundations which they can then develop if they want you know if they don't want and they want to be a bit lazy and just phone it in fair enough if you want that grounding especially at 18 when i don't think you're ready for the real world yet personally i was might be different for some people but then the university education still is there it's a problem because of the cost i don't think anyone should pay for university but we do so that's yeah that. I, I, um, so, i'm quite old-fashioned i uh not old-fashioned i used to read a lot of old books so I, I read a lot of kind of uh, 19th, like turn of the century stuff. And it was always drilled into those kind of books that going to university was a thing only for the, the privileged few. Um, oh, right. And that's not the thing anymore, is it? No, certainly not. Um, it does then lead, though, to problems whereby people who probably shouldn't go to university think they should. Um, yeah. People who would be far better suited to um, going and getting a job, being entrepreneurial, or some sort of, um, you know, a lot of my Placing friends went to university. Say again? Placing items on a shelf. Possibly. But a lot of my friends who spent a lot of time at university have dropped out of whatever they were doing with that course yeah. and started working with their hands. You know what I mean? A mate, a mate of mine is completely happy, loving life, works um, on an estate, managing the estate. He was, enough, he was a pharmacist. Yeah. So, like, so these people shouldn't necessarily go, but we assume that they should. Critical yeah. thinking again, considering where you want to go and what you want to do. But no, I've got lots of friends that went to university and say, I've never been, um, I hope to, but um, it was something that was never really on the table for me because of my um, what's the term? economic socio standing at the time. It wasn't viable. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, it, it's certainly interesting. It's something, it's something that there's a lot of confusion around these days. Um, so the last thing I think we wanted to touch on, and correct me if I'm wrong, was um, your your private services? Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, a little bit. Yeah, it's a straight up plug, really. Yeah, well, that's. Um, I, have, uh, <laughs> I have plugged the university, so I think that's good. And one 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 other point on the on the university. We we actually, I, I'm an external examiner at two different universities. I've been an external examiner at two other different universities. That means I go in and like look at their courses and stuff. And, and I've worked at other universities. I've got friends all over the country. The Nottingham Trent Sports Science degree is one of the best in the country, without a doubt. If someone is actually considering this sort of area, young, old, whatever, Nottingham Trent is, is a really, really good place to do it. We nail our support of students. Because we're one of those smaller universities, I mean, we're actually quite big now, because we have traditionally been. So we for nail about, our school you, you were going to say you nail your students. Um, should not be. No, we certainly don't do that. No. Um, anyway, so enough of that plug-in, gosh. Um, um, I also have a, 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 a immersive research consultation company business. Um, so, so the idea there is all of this sort of stuff that I've talked about, this way of understanding the world from, quote, unquote, the inside, getting into it. Um, 
two real ways that I kind of like try and help people there is one go into businesses and, and try and say, look, how can I be in this business with you for a bit and give you some kind of knowledge uh, based on your staff experiences, customer experiences, that, that sort of stuff, generating insights. Um, the other one is going into businesses and doing talks, not undissimilar to this workshops on critical thinking on research methods on, you know, one of the main things is that I, I've seen so much research, crap research done for companies using surveys and surveys are designed to elicit a certain answer and it's a complete waste of time. And I want to be, what people do is they think, oh, we'll get this market research company because they'll do it for 500 quid. The yeah. university have quoted 50 grand. So clearly we'll do it for 500 quid. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to kind of find a middle ground, sure. which is we can do this more nuanced work and we can do it in different ways, sometimes stripped back, which enable the financial side to be more appropriate. So that's immersiveresearch.co.uk. And that's also the place where all my research is, which is free to download. And if anyone wants to contact me, you can contact me through there to get the other stuff that I've talked about. Most of the stuff that I talked about at the beginning was, was, was books in terms of Hoveman, but um, where there's papers and stuff, or if anyone wants to have a conversation about this, any of this stuff, then that's the way to try and pick me up. So that's um, a nice little plug. Th thanks for that. Um, no, you're right. I'll try and pop a link to the website in the description if we can. Um, you can also get in touch with Dr. Matthews via Twitter, because apparently he still uses that. He tells me that other academics use it. I don't think they do, but apparently that's the way to do it. Um, or you can look at dogs on his Instagram. Yeah, basically. So the Twitter is dr. Um, C. R. Matthews. So it's short for Dr. Christopher R. Matthews. I have to use my R because there's another Christopher Matthews. There's a few. Yeah. Um, so D. R. C. R. Matthews. Yeah, Instagram, because obviously you've now tweeted me a couple, uh, Instagram to me, yeah, whatever that is. And I've now got some followers on Instagram from you. Yeah. And they're just going to get cheese, port, beer, dogs, and I cigars. I see no problem with that whatsoever. Well, if they're into that, they can follow, follow away. They're not going to get any science, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you could, you know, you could rather talk about the modern world. Pardon? You could transition over into the modern world and kind of do a bit of that new thing as well. Uh, yeah. Or is you it have to do, if you're going to do social media, say again? Is it too lowbrow for academics? Is that the problem? No, no, no. It's just that if you're going to do social media, you have to do it properly. And I've always been quite loose on social media and I'm trying to up my game on Insta, uh, sorry, on Twitter yeah. and like not put spelling mistakes into stuff and to, to, to right. tweet stuff that makes some sense. So to try and then do that on another platform at the same time is probably just a little bit too much for me. Right. Considering as well, you know, I, I, academics don't need social media. We need to be in a classroom teaching and publish some research. Our, yeah. our life is relatively, if you want it to be untouched by social media still. Yeah, there's some high flyers who go and do this and that and the other, but you don't need to. You can just do what I do and kind of like flow under the radar. Uh, the, the, all the weird seminars and stuff that kick off now kind of spawn from, it seems to be, or certainly within our little clique. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. You know, um, people like Martin McDonald have done phenomenally well. At Martin's another person who was at Loughborough. So, so there's all these people, and I'm sure there's a lad from um, Muscle Mentors who was at Loughborough and I was there. I don't know his name. And you mentioned um, Josh, Josh earlier. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of us who, say again? Something in the water at Loughborough, Bebop or whatever. Yeah, well, everyone knows about Loughborough and its kind of connection to sports science and sport more broadly, but there's a whole bunch that were in Powerbase for that time, and Jordan Peters as well, yeah. um, who were there, who, I, 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 you know, I'm not involved in this subculture like all those are, you know, as names and whatever. Yeah. But I see them all and I'm like, 
sure, I'm sure we might train together at some point. Yeah. Um, it's funny watching Martin. He's hilarious. Um, <laughs> I've known Martin for years. Yeah. Such a good guy. Uh, and the kind of the, the, the following he's built and the uh, online identity is ridiculous. It's I've only met him probably yeah. once at a body power after party and he was drunk. And um, he was talking with someone about nutrition and I gave my opinion and he went, yeah, but you're a juice bomb. Um, <laughs> and at the time I was, I was probably about the biggest that I've been. Um, but that's kind of been my lasting impression of him. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that's not representative of him. I'm sure he's not a good man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, he's a good guy, Martin. But, he, you know, he'll call it as he sees it. He wasn't wrong, yeah. right? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, he wasn't wrong. But uh, I can't remember what the topic was. I just remember that I sold for the rest of the night because yeah. I like uh, him and Phil Lerney. They've, they've both got a way. Like, they could talk about the science of paint drying and then it would be listenable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's got a very good presence. Team. It's good to have watched him grow over the last few years as well, because I've seen that kind of, I've seen that develop. He, you know, he's always he's always a very good guy and always very switched on, but he's uh, shifted a few gears up, so that's nice to see. Um, anyway, on that note, we will leave it at that. Um, Dr. Matthews's website is again something research. I don't know. Immersiveresearch.co.uk. That's what I said. I think. And I think. Um, yeah, this has been a bit of a change of pace from normal. Um, so any feedback, any questions, shoot them over to us because we are getting into the habit of doing follow-up episodes five or ten episodes later where we'll look at uh, a more specific topic in detail. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Matthews, and I will speak to you soon.